Welcome back to Campbell Conversations with your host, Colin Campbell, and today is episode 187 of the podcast, and I am joined by Matt Kelly, the founder of Space Goods. Matt is a designer and a serial entrepreneur. During this conversation, expect to learn about Matt's journey as an entrepreneur, the continuous quest to build brands, and the significant highs and lows that have come along the way. Matt was in incredibly reflective mood when we recorded this one, and anyone that has heard Matt speak before knows how open, vulnerable, and insightful his story is. Or if you're new to hearing Matt's story, then you're really going to enjoy this conversation. You're going to learn about the process behind building previous brands like Dusk, Midnight City, and Neon Beach. But importantly, you're also going to learn about the recovering from one of the biggest challenges that you can face as an entrepreneur, and that is the collapse of a business. Now, out of the ashes of that business and moving forward with the mindset that he's developed off the back of that, Matt has created Space Goods. If you're not familiar with Space Goods, you're going to be excited about what's to come as we talk about all things branding, marketing, but most importantly, the product itself, which is a mushroom-based supplement. I am so much more open-minded to exploring different things like this over the last few years, and I really, really believe that if we have considerations about the future of legislation around psychedelics then things like mushrooms at this moment in time and supplements off the back of those are going to be things that are going to form the foundations of that industry moving forward and matt certainly shares his thoughts on that as somebody who's at the very forefront of that industry matt is a thoroughbred entrepreneur and i think you're really going to enjoy this reflective insightful conversation with somebody that's functioning at that level and has bounced back from the lowest of lows to to build something that he's truly passionate about and i think is going to have a pretty significant impact on the wellness world if you would like to support today's podcast you can do so in four ways three of those are completely free make sure if you are listening on apple Podcasts or on spotify you are subscribed or following the second way is making sure you've left a five-star rating for the podcast on both of those platforms the third way if you're enjoying this episode or if you've got a particular favorite in the archives copy and paste that link to a friend and recommend it to them that is the number one way the show has grown to the level it's grown to to be in the top one percent in the world globally is unbelievable and it cannot keep happening unless people like you keep supporting other people like you and the last way is you can hit buy me a coffee in the bio and you can help me caffeinate through before these podcasts and bring my energy and support the show that way the music's going to play and you're going to hear it from mr matt kelly and myself for just over an hour and i cannot wait to hear what you all think Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me. Fresh out of the gym. As always, yeah. I feel like I always look like shit on my own pod and on every other pod I go on because I've usually just come out of the gym or something. Um, but yeah, uh, lack of preparation. Um, I guess visually, I I tend to just like I was saying to you just now. I'm just I'm just so deep in the trenches at the minute that I feel like I almost forget to fucking get changed sometimes. Um, especially like well, particularly Monday to Friday. But yeah, there's a lot going on right now, so. That's very self-depreciating in terms of the looks, Matt. But we'll, we'll we'll breeze past that. And you said you're you're in the trenches at the minute. That's when it seems like you're happiest. I feel like I always have been. I feel like I've been in the trenches for seven years. Um, yeah, probably. I, I like making progress. Um, I feel like I definitely am right now. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't I don't know what else I'd be doing in my time, right? Like I always like flippantly say, like, what do people that don't build stuff do with their time? I genuinely don't get it. Like, well, I do get it. I guess they finish work and go and like be happy and shit. Whereas I'm probably less interested in that and more driven by trying to build something. Um, 
but yeah, that's just the way my brain is wired and probably a lot of people that listen to these sort of pods or listen to my pod and so on. Undoubtedly. And I think having a purpose and something to work towards is absolutely vital. And I think when you've spoken about the varying degrees of challenges that you faced with your mental health, the probably most challenging period was, albeit of course, when you were going through an online shitstorm, but equally when you were out of that before you'd started Space Goods, that was like a, a lull in terms of what is my purpose right now? Whereas right now you're in the trenches just working, 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 and like you can see that you're physically excited by that. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I probably fucking hate what I'm doing half the time, then love it other times, but I guess that's fairly normal. And I've come to realize that, yeah, I think the only thing that makes me feel fulfilled is probably trying to at least build something. Um, whether that's like in the gym or in a business or whatever it is, um, I should probably get better at building other parts of my life, which maybe are lacking at times. But I think it's probably unrealistic to have a real balance at, at this point in my life. Um, I don't know. I think a lot of people say you kind of have to choose. Is, is there like four things and you have to choose two of them or something? I don't know what it is. There's, there's some phrase and it's like work, fitness, social, family, or something like that. I definitely don't have much of the the social and family at the minute it feels like but that's all good i think as long as you're happy with the choices that you make and i see this framework quite a lot if you can be pleased with yourself in terms of what your eight-year-old self would want and your 80-year-old self would want and they could look at how you're spending your time and they'd be content with that then that can be quite a good metric to judge things by yeah interesting yeah i thought if my my eight-year-old and 80-year-old would align but, but they probably will somewhere in the middle so that's a good way to look at it you said you've been in the trenches for seven years. I know you've done so much with it like that time. Net trenches, yeah. It's, there's been different periods. When was the first time that we saw that you potentially had the entrepreneurial flair that you've continually shown over this period? Like, was it something that was like, you know, those kids at school that are selling sweets and shit like that? People always have that that funny story, don't they? But was that the case for young Matt? I always say I reckon I was quite late to the, I mean, late compared to, that's the problem with social media, right? Late compared to the fucking 17-year-olds I see that are apparently making 10 million quid a day or something. Um, you know, or at least certainly people that portray that image. So I, I feel like I got into it quite late relatively. I would say I properly got into entrepreneurship when I was about 19 or 18 maybe when I had a clothing brand and I used to just draw logos. That was how I got into anything. Like I was always a creative first and then I wanted to build a website. I used to build random websites that didn't sell anything. And then I had a clothing brand when I was like 18, 19. And I'm talking literally like a logo on a t-shirt, everyone laughing at you sort of thing. But I was definitely, I was the first person I ever knew that was building a Shopify website, I guess, back when it wasn't cool, back in like late 2014, 2015. So I've, I feel like I've been doing it a long time to some extent. Um, so yeah, that was probably the first time. I mean, I, I knew when I was 10 years old, I didn't want to do what everyone else was doing. I just didn't know what that was or what that meant. So I don't know, not in an arrogant way, just in a, I always felt weird. Like I'd never related to anyone at school and so on. Um, and then I guess I, did, I didn't have, I didn't know what vehicle that would be in. I didn't even know what, I didn't even know what entrepreneurship was really. Um, certainly didn't know what e-commerce was or have any skills to do anything. But I guess, yeah, everyone starts from somewhere. And for me, that was just, I used to just draw logos. And then that became a website and then that became a shitty little t-shirt brand. And then that, that became a few other things. And was that dusk kind of the rest 
No, this is way before that. That, that was my first brand that probably did decent revenue. Like uh, I had a brand called Gentry Club, which is still on Instagram. Okay. I, I don't know where, I've forgotten where that name came from. I think we used to call my group of friends, something like that. And it was literally, I just bought like Gilden t-shirts and had some factory stitch and embroidered logo on it. So very, very, very B-Tech. Um, but yeah, spent my entire John Lewis summer job wages on stock and sold about three of them to my family. But that is usually how it starts. And everyone took the piss out of me quite aggressively. Was that building a thick skin for what was to come down the line or at least an acknowledgement that when you do I guess something different, to a, you're going yeah, to be ridiculed? To a level. Yeah, I think if you haven't been ridiculed, then you're probably not doing enough in some way. And obviously there's different levels to that and it probably affects you more when you're fucking 18, 19 and haven't achieved anything. I think when you're doing well and people take the piss or whatever, then well, they're unlikely to take the piss when you're doing well. But you know, there'd be another thing that's ridiculing you, whether it's haters or competitors or whatever. But I think, yeah, everyone has if you're not pissing off people or getting some opinions, you're probably not doing enough. And, you know, obviously that, that comes in different shapes and sizes as later on in my life, I learned. Um, and I still get that now. I get people that probably hate me for some reason, like some real, I was on the Frankie Lee podcast recently and some real went like semi-viral. It got like 200,000 views, which I guess on a reel from a podcast is quite a lot of views. And I got, I got like 3,000 new followers, a load of messages. And I was reading the comments on that. And fucking hell, there's just so many people like literally commenting like, who is this cunt? And I'm just thinking, I just don't care anymore because A, I feel sorry for people that write anything like that in any capacity on the internet to anyone because it really is a reflection on them, not the person they're writing about. And B, like, I'm really not, I don't care about the opinion of someone who's probably sat in their fucking mum's basement, right? But when you're 19, you probably don't have the perspective to think like that. So I've definitely got a thicker skin now and I probably wouldn't care what anyone said about me at this point. I think that's Partly very, because very I'm very self-deprecating and have probably said every, every shit thing there is to say about myself before anyone else can say it now. Um, in terms of your own self-talks, or are they bad enough? So who, what, what does it matter? Well, yeah, and account? also like I've just been so open about my own failures and so on that like I'm not pretending to to be some absolute wizard that's never put a foot wrong. Whereas I think a lot of people that are, are the ones that probably are uh, at more risk of being cancelled or whatever it is. I, I don't feel like I could be cancelled because I've already said it. Do you know what I mean? Unless someone accuses me of, I don't know, racism or something, but I've never said that anyway. So, but certainly yeah. in like a, in a, like a success porn way, because I know a lot of like gurus get cancelled and so on. There's some exposed, you know, the truth exposed. Whereas my entire, all the content I've been putting on the internet since I started doing it, it's just, it's just being it, being transparent, which is why I think I started to build a bit of an audience because very few people are. You were incredibly good fun to prepare for because you have said everything and it's all an open book, including like you say, financials, the ups and the downs of business, the basically any sort of challenge, even legal ones that you've gone through, it's all kind of documented out there. So I suppose if anyone was calling you out and, calling you unpleasant things you're kind of like well if you can mm. really go and find the detail and, and and bring me something to the table that's that's new that i don't already know about then then please do so but there is definitely a tipping point when something goes viral to a particular level where you reach corners of the internet that are not intended for that content so you speaking to frankie lee is probably for other aspirational like-minded people who want to hear your story about the ups and the downs of business where you're going next what you're planning to do maybe gain inspiration or perspective 
when it reaches maybe like a part of Instagram where they're like, oh, look at this guy talking about yeah. money or business. Like that's that's Which, that's to so be fair. Lame. Have to remind yourself, like that is ninety nine percent of the internet. Sadly, is consumers, not creators. I mean, and then within that big bucket of consumers, there is, I guess, relatively a small but loud percentage of just hateful consumers that will just hate on anything they watch and will never do anything with their own existence, which is the ultimate tragedy, really. But they will never see that. Um, so it's just it's the reality of life, you know. It's, if if there's a top one percent, or whatever you want to call it, there's there's a bottom one percent, and they're probably not very pleasant people. Um, whichever way you want to call it, you know, financially, like ethically, morally, whatever. There's a bottom one percent, and they're probably the ones making most of the noise. Yeah, so. and they've got they've got the same level of access to technology that the top one percent have, and it's probably more in your face than ever before. But the unpleasantness, because I guess you've probably never had somebody come up to your face and say something deeply offensive to you, or if you have, it will be like on on you can count on one no, hand. Whereas if you count the number of trolls that you've had, yeah. much higher. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's a strange one. So. But Gentry Club came first. I know Dusk. What you mentioned there was one of the first businesses where you're like, right, okay, I'm actually able to sell yeah that, that was probably like, that was money. probably like the first proper one um i had I, I reckon i literally had like 20 shopify brands before i made any money like literally I, I say brand when i say brand i mean a domain name and a logo so loosely but you know attempting to do something um and yeah dusk was i i never really speak about that one in like my podcast and shit but i always forget about it but that was in like end of 2016 start of 2017 ish time that was before I dropped out of uni and was the reason I eventually, eventually did drop out of uni in like March 2017, which is fucking six years ago now, which is crazy. Um, so yeah, that that started as, funnily enough, that started as a dropshipping website because I had started brand building, i.e. developing my own products prior to getting into dropshipping, which is kind of the opposite way a lot of people go about it. But then I realized I had no money and I discovered Facebook ads in late 2016. Then I started dropshipping jeans from China when Geordie Shaw was popular and all that. And then that became a proper brand in the sense that we ended up designing our own products, you know, but buying stock, had a 3PL in the UK. So that was my first, I guess, proper business that was doing decent numbers. And we had an office in Newcastle. I say we, it was me and Ollie, who's the guy that now runs my ads and is an investor in my brand. So that's interesting how that came around. But yeah, that brand eventually, I kind of forgotten to be honest, but basically just fizzled out because we fell out. It, it was never like massive scale. We were probably doing like 30, 40 grand a month in revenue, but it was decent. We just didn't really know what the fuck we were doing. Um, but in hindsight, at 20 years old in uni, that was actually pretty good. So and it's, it's good you're giving yourself credit back. for that. I've heard you speak on previous pods and, and, and Frankie was telling you off, wasn't he, for, for not recognizing quite how significant that actually is when you consider as a 20-year-old doing that. I suppose, like you said, nowadays we're seeing young guys on TikTok flashing about, oh yeah, I'm, I'm dropshipping income of a million pounds a, a month or whatever bullshit they're, they're mm. coming up with and showing you. No shippers. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're, they're yeah. showing you screenshots from uh, from somebody's Stripe account. Um, yeah. it's, a, it's, it's, it's a funny world, but I guess that was like maybe proof of concept that you were genuinely going to be a successful entrepreneur after maybe doing 20 different Shopify websites. You're like, okay, well maybe I can I can do this. Yeah, honestly, I, I think I'm like the slowest person ever to do anything because I always say like I've been doing this for like six years and I'm still fucking trying to make it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Whereas the narrative from the other side of the internet, which is genuinely fucking gurus who are actually just selling you something, is they were doing it for a month and now they're retired or something, which is just really funny because 
I don't know, if you look at any like actually respectable entrepreneur, i.e. not a guru or YouTuber who's selling you a course, um, they probably have been doing something for at least 10 years before like they properly made it. Um, or even 20, 30 years in terms of, depends what level you're talking about. But yeah, I don't know. I think it's a strange world we live in. Like Twitter is absolutely riddled with people just, in my opinion, just lying to sell people something. Um, I don't know. I've got, I've got a lot of opinions on a lot of things, but I feel like I'm kind of fairly qualified to give them because I've been doing it long enough and I'm very honest. So I feel like the people that aren't kind of need calling out in some way, but I'm not the sort of person to spend my day calling out people because it's not a very productive It'd be activity. Exhausting. But it's not an energy giving activity, that, is there? Yeah, there are certain things though that just I'll see on the internet or whatever and think this is absolute bullshit. And it's just such a shame that, I don't know, I think the truth prevails eventually and like, yeah. Let's hope so. Yeah. You mentioned Ollie was in business with you for Dusk um, and he's now in business with you again. So network is obviously something that's very important to you. So I want to ask you about your, your trip to Singapore and what role that played in kind of opening your, your eyes to... Oh, yeah, I always talk about that. Yeah. That's like the first time I ever met anyone that was also entrepreneurial and, in, and into like e-com and all this stuff. So yeah, um, I dropped out of uni and then ended up traveling around Europe by myself in like summer 2017, which is probably something I would never do now. Maybe I was like more, I don't know, maybe I was more self-confident then and just traveling by myself and gave less of a fuck. So I'd like, I don't know, less appearances to maintain or something. And then I went to some event in like September, 2017 around then it was in Singapore, like you said, um, it's actually a really like scammy event in hindsight. It was called like the e-commerce world summit. And it's just full of like drop shippers that I guess I just looked up to without any like due diligence or knowledge of who they were and what they were actually doing. Um, and yeah, that's the first time I met people that were similar age, doing similar things. And also people that were doing much bigger things. And I thought, oh, I'm not the only person that's doing this stuff. And eventually I ended up traveling to Bali with a bunch of them and basically became like a full-time nomad for a few years after that, primarily with because of people I'd met there. Um, so yeah. Proof of concepts massive, isn't think, it, Matt? So like you, you see somebody else doing something that might be possible, especially when you see it in reality in the flesh, rather than online, as you say, somebody may be flexing. You actually physically saw somebody running businesses in a way that they were able to live in Bali. They were able to to travel between countries and, and, and do the nomad lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. I think, yeah, experience breeds confidence or whatever. And like when you see other people doing stuff and you know it's real, then it, it normalizes something which may have previously been put on a pedestal whatever that is like for me then it was just the ability to run a business online and not have to get a normal job which i never wanted to do and yeah i was doing that back then i guess i've been doing that ever since so i've yeah i've had plenty of ups and downs but i guess i've never i've never not ultimately been in the game which which i started playing full-time when i left uni i suppose because so i've never had a full-time job i've never relied on anyone else for my my life um so i guess that's that's quite cool it's definitely cool and you can see why you think and speak the way you do and you're so forth right if you haven't been within the machine that kind of turns you into a cookie cutter yeah. corporate employee yeah it's actually really funny like i go to like soho works and shit now and then now because i'm trying to build the team more in the uk and I, I was saying to someone else the other day i feel like an absolute alien in any office environment because I just feel like such an imposter because I, I don't know, it's probably partly just my imposter syndrome, which is ludicrous. Um, but I've never, I've not, I've not grown up in my early twenties and in my career 
being in that typical nine to five office system or whatever you want to call it. So even being in like a co-work space feels weird to me because most people there probably aren't running their own D2C business. Whereas that's like the, the only world I've been in for like the past six years since I was in a fucking uni classroom. I've either been working out of like villas or whatever, wherever I've been living, working out of my place in London, you know, with people running the same shit that it, it strangely feels very alien to do very normal things to me. Um, even as far as like commuting somewhere, which if I'm going to like a co-work space, which I have been doing recently, I, I will do, you know, or get up in the morning and go somewhere. So it's strange how such normal things feel weird to me because what feels normal to me is probably what's really weird to a lot of people. Um, so not that it's, it's any very, better, but it's just different. Yeah, it's a very uh, woke term nowadays, but like lived experience is definitely a thing. So like your lived experience mm. is not to have commuted to an office or even like a, a, a communal working space. You're, yeah. you've, you've got up and got after it and grafted wherever you were with your laptop. And that's something that so many people aspire to. But when you've always been in it, it just feels like, oh, that's, it's just another day for me. Yeah, I, I also think, and this is where like I always call myself like a cynical optimist because I believe I can do anything and whatever but I'm also like so just blunt about the realities of certain things and I, I always found it very funny when I was living this nomad lifestyle or whatever you want to call it it almost it almost has become a meme in recent years particularly like post-covid and I know a lot of people used to say oh how jealous they are that I can work in Bali or whatever but the reality of that is nothing like Instagram or YouTube portrays it's still very cool but it's way less cool than you think. Like you can't fucking get Wi-Fi connection. You go to a cafe and there's nowhere to sit. You get barley belly for two weeks and you're shitting yourself. Do you know, <laughs> I was in Bali over New Year and honestly, everyone was so sick. So our group chat ended up being called Barley Belly, and now it still is. And I'm meant to be going to Bali in a month's time as well. And I haven't actually booked a flight. Um, I'm a bit scared to go back. But yeah, I mean, it's just funny because those nomad experiences which in hindsight are always way better than they were which kind of the beauty of hindsight anyway and like memories and shit but it's just people that have never done it think it's like this whole utopian perfect world whereas it is cool and i'm sure particularly if you've never done it but it's not as perfect and idyllic as it may seem and not always optimal for what you're doing now because i'm given how hard you're having to work now a day having food food poisoning or sickness is probably going yeah. to take away from your ability to be maximally productive yeah honestly this is something i have thought about and debate all the time is like firstly i think for me the whole nomad thing and living in bali is like the particular primary part of that because i lived in bali more than anywhere else like i think i enjoyed that more when i was younger in my early 20s um when i was first doing it I don't actually want to be doing that all the time right now. I would rather be where I am in London primarily and then traveling more as a holiday, which I still struggle to do because even when I go away on a holiday, inverted commas, I'm still fucking working. But yeah, I don't think it's sustainable or would be enjoyable for me to be in Bali for three months now. Like, I don't know. It's it's always grass is greener. Sometimes I think, particularly in the UK winter, oh, I'd love to be in Bali right now. And that's what I did over New Year for like three weeks. But then, even, but then when I was there, I thought I'd much rather be in London right now at my home office, getting more shit done with the bigger screen, the faster internet connection. So it is funny how your priorities and needs change as you get older, I think, and also decide what you want to try and achieve. And there are, of course, ex- exceptions, but I don't think you can build the sort of business I, I would like to think I'm trying to build 
being a nomad in Bali. And again, I'm sure there's ex exceptions to every rule. But for me, I don't think I could do that. Like time zones, climate, um, just anything really. Um, I, I just think for me, I've decided that London ha has been my base the past four years. I probably will continue to be for the next certainly four years and maybe beyond that. It's a great hub um, for a network as so, well, yeah. though, Matt, because you're still surrounded by like-minded people. Because yes, in Bali, you're surrounded by other nomads, but London, there's probably a lot of guys in your space that you can bounce off. You can host on your podcast. You can talk to about the kind of problems that they are more likely to understand than if you were in, say, a city further north or a smaller town. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't live anywhere else but London in the UK. It's just I'm from York up north. And for me, I, I just hate the idea of being a big fish in a small pond, which I was in York. And there's nothing wrong with that, but I think you have to be self-aware enough to think about that because I think where you live is very, very important. I consciously moved to London four years ago because I wanted to feel like a very small fish in a much bigger pond. And there's a lot more talent here. There's a lot more money here. There's a lot more competition in every respect here, whether that's, I don't know, even with like dating market is way bigger. There's more competition for girls. There's more competition in the gym. There's more, whatever it is, there's just a lot more going on here. And I, and I also think, the location of London is very convenient, like worldwide. I know there's a big switch, particularly on like Twitter culture to like Dubai recently. And I don't get a lot of that. I mean, my best mates just moved to Dubai literally today. So that's quite sad, but he, he's going there for his own reasons. Um, I can see the appeal to that actually in like UK winter. And maybe I'll trial it in six months time from when we get to the end of spring, summer. In that was something I was asked about recently, Matt, on a, on a I'm starting to see the appeal. Yeah, starting to see the appeal of Dubai in, in UK winter. I, I didn't get it at all before um, because I just think I truly don't believe tax is the only factor in living quality. Like, I don't know. Do you want to live in a desert forever just to save on tax? I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It just doesn't add up for me. But I can see the appeal in UK winter for sure. And I mean, there are obviously other reasons, not just tax, that most people go there. But I think that is certainly a driving one. Um, finances are a big factor i guess the weather like i like being able to wake up in the morning the, and know that the weather's my day's not gonna be disrupted yeah so it's huge during winters you say when i go to dubai in november december i'm always like i'm so glad i'm not in glasgow or, or the uk right now oh yeah glasgow is probably even fucking worse than very than damp indeed matt yeah yeah i've actually never been but there's, uh, there's, there's nothing drawing me there sadly maybe i yeah, should give I, it a shot i can understand that the the thing that's interesting about are you in London, glasgow right now yeah, Sorry. Glasgow, yeah. Oh, I travel right. a lot yeah, for work. So, to Dubai. Um, I mean, that was something I was asked about recently on a, on a solo pod about would you consider working remotely? So we both interviewed Sue Ammon, who travels a lot with his work, oh, yeah. and yeah. he's he's all over the place, and I think he's been in Portugal recently. Portugal's an interesting one because it's on the same time zone. Um, yeah, I went Lisbon's to the same time zone. So, yeah, so there's upside to that. Dubai's probably about four hours, so when I speak to either podcast yeah, guests out hours. there or, or work colleagues, it's 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 reasonable. Um. But if we um if we if we if we go back to kind of your career and your accomplishments, Matt, I'd love to talk about Midnight City because I think that stands out as a brand that you you built at a time when like it was almost proof that you could scale something very very big indeed. Because was that probably the first one that did like considerable revenue? I know Dusk. Some somebody sitting listening to this thinking he's talking 30, yeah, forty grand a month with Dusk. Yeah, that was the first brand that did over a million. So the very brief timeline, I get bored talking about it, but I had Dusk. And then that kind of fizzled out. And then I got back into like the dropshipping space. So I must have, I probably did about 5 million in revenue over about, over about two and a half years dropshipping. And 
when I say drop shipping, I mean, I literally had like five different websites. It was purely just how can I make as much profit as possible while traveling? It was very much a lifestyle business. I did a few things. I had like a website selling leggings back when you could do that. They wouldn't be viable now because it's Facebook feedback score. CPMs are way high, you know, all this shit. Back then you would like CPA of like two quid on like a 10 pound product. So it was like, I used to just do volume shit. Um, back when I was running all my own ads, I had like five VAs and I was just deep running ads all day. That was basically the whole business. It was very, very raw. And then, yeah, I'd, I always wanted to build brands again. And I guess to define what I mean by brand is for me, a brand is something that you've entirely built from scratch. The products, you know, the visuals, the aesthetic, the story, whatever it is, as opposed to drop shipping, which is the best place to get started and what most people do when they have zero money. So, yeah, I then got into the jewelry space at like the end of 2018, early 19 which looking back now again was pretty early for men's jewelry brands um it was like me and crafted london were probably the only two brands that were maybe not the only two but now there's i think it's the most competitive along with clothing it's just the most competitive space ever particularly in the uk i think because because the margin to sorry the barrier to entry is so fucking low because the product's really cheap it's also not that you'd have to be that creative to fucking come up with a jewelry brand. It's just like you sell a Cuban chain, like the shit I'm wearing now, like every brand in this under the sun wears the same, makes the same shit. It's quite hard to be unique, but yeah. Um, yeah. I scaled that pretty quick. That was a decent business. Um, I was just never that passionate about it. I, I always look back at things that I did in the past and think, Christ, if I knew what I knew now, then I guess hindsight's 2020, isn't it? But I always think if, if I'd focused on that a bit more, if I'd, I don't know. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. I'm probably terrible thinking that way, but is that the think... one that got away though? Is do you feel that way about it? A bit, because I ended up fucking getting swallowed in the situation with Neon Beach, which I've spoke about many, many, many times, and it's probably one of my biggest regrets and something I'm probably not still over because I could have made a lot of money from that. Um, so in many ways, it was, and it's a shame because, yeah, in a nutshell, because I launched Neon Beach along on the side and didn't structure the companies properly, I ended up basically losing a very good profitable business for fuck, relatively fuck all money because of one that went wrong. Um, whereas if I sat under know, MK I, brands, weren't they? Yeah. If, if I'd never launched Neon Beach, you know, I probably, and I turned down a very sizable offer to buy that brand about six months earlier. And because I was an arrogant 24 year old at the time, I said no. <laughs> whereas, whereas now I would have said yes, thank you very much. But that was also 2020 when yeah just money was so cheap people were throwing cash at things yeah there's probably millions of people globally that missed out on an opportunity when in hindsight 2020 was a gold rush in many ways that's it yeah that's that that's a really valuable point isn't it because there was so much liquid capital available to do the things you want to do and then during 2020 you had everyone sat in front of their screens more than ever before willing to buy yeah. products online so doing the kind of thing that you were doing with um midnight city and then of course um neon beach these were products that were kind of ideal for for that time period yeah I th well particularly neon beach yeah i mean every brand that i knew of was flying in 2020 like it was just yeah it was like it was like a major bull run in e-commerce basically because yeah everyone was sat at home on I forgot what it's called now fucking Furlough. Everyone got paid, yeah, furlough, with no nowhere to spend it other than the, the internet, really, because restaurants were shut. You couldn't go out partying, whatever it was. So yeah, it was like perfect for interior decor, large AOV products, I guess, which is why I think the neon thing blew up so quick. But it was also terrible for supply chain and many 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 other things, which was the the flip side of that, which is ultimately what destroyed the business. Um, 
but yeah, I mean, I've told that story a billion times, so let's not go into that too much. But yeah, of course, I can wanna... understand that. Just just regarding shipping, though, I know that from my day job, we sell furniture into the property industry, primarily student accommodation, and the cost mm. of shipping a forty foot container from China went from eighteen hundred in November nineteen to eighteen thousand at one point during the pandemic. Yeah, so it was fucked. It was absurd because then you have to pass on that cost on the sofas or the neon signs that you're selling. Mm. So it's 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 absolutely wild because you're getting the same number of those in a forty foot container as whatever you've ordered previously, but you've just got a, a, a huge shipping cost to cover. Yeah, it was madness. Yeah, I think 2020 and even 21 really was a fucking bull run for everything. I think you know a lot of the world has woken up to the the reality of that now, particularly in the past six months with interest rates cost of living all this shit you know and i think it's the first time a lot of people in our generation you know including myself ultimately but although i started to fucking pay the price of that two years ago when that business went tits up it's the first time i think a lot of people have realized stuff doesn't go well all the time um not saying that no one had experienced any hardship before but i think a lot of people in e-commerce particularly particularly kind of drop shippers people that I don't know, even just brand owners were sort of printing cash in 2020, 21. Like I speak to a lot of brand owners, including ones that people probably think have it all perfect. And they're having a really hard time right now as well. Even ones that have got loads of money behind them, naming no names, but I know a lot of them. Um, so yeah, it's a really fucking hard time to build an online business right now. I think particularly D2C. But I try and use that as a positive and think, well, if I can do it now in arguably terrible conditions for everyone and I, you know i don't get too hung up on that but market conditions aren't great um then you know in a few years time it should be a lot easier so just trying to put the foundations in place now um, certainly looks that way from the outside looking in matt and i know you're a big david goggins fan or you consumed a lot of his content anyway yeah how much do you think that neon beach period calloused your mind or calloused your ability to deal with pressure and go again yeah, honestly, I've said many times, and I think it's true. Like, I think other than terminal illness or whatever, I don't think it can get much worse. Like compared to that that time period, it was definitely way worse than I've ever described in a podcast either. Because there's plenty of things I haven't even gone into. Um, but yeah, it was like financial fuckery plus social media abuse, which all ultimately ended up in <laughs> me just. Yeah, being a bit fucked in the head for a long time, to be honest. I reckon I've got a huge amount of PTSD from that period in many ways, but don't, you know, don't we all about certain elements of life? And you know, there's kids in Syria that are having a harder time than me, so I'm not going to sit here and fucking mope about it. But yeah, it, it was a rough time. I, I, don't, I, th I think plenty of people that have also built big businesses would probably have struggled to get up and go again in many ways because it was that fucked. Um, and I, I still mentally pay the price for that now absolutely like it's not like i've moved on and everything's perfect now um I, I still probably i think i'll probably always be affected by that in many ways but yeah it certainly did callous my mind in many ways um and i just don't find anything as stressful to be honest because it just can't be it's like well what else you'd have to fucking chop my legs off or something to make it worse i don't know one of the most Sorry. strange things I, I found about the whole saga was that the online mob didn't quite understand that you were incurring significant costs to try and get customers reimbursed for their orders with chargebacks being put onto your card. Yeah, so not going into too much detail, but I'm still dealing with the... I'm still paying the price for some of that, basically. It, uh, yeah, 
no no further comment um but yeah there's some complicated shit that happened with that where i was personally liable for stuff that i shouldn't have been because i was paying customers back basically um but it's all very complicated i'm actually dealing with a bit of a process right now two years later to try and clarify bits these of things that. always have a, a hangover don't they and it, which I, is I... one part that i've never discussed online and probably never will in any detail because i shouldn't but the point is, yeah, it was the hardest part of that at the time was dealing with this fucking mob. And probably some people, even now, I mean, I'm sure there's someone in the world that even now still thinks or talks about the fucking sign that didn't arrive. <laughs> but, you know, like I did, ultimately the biggest price I paid to get, do right by customers was losing 80% of a business I built. Um, and basically 100% because the 20% wasn't fucking worth anything in the end. Um, of two businesses I built, that was ultimately the price I paid, right? Um as well as my fucking mental health for about two years and literally paying back a lot of money that I put into that situation to try and resolve it, which ultimately maybe I didn't have to do in hindsight, but at the time I didn't have the best advice around me. So yeah, without going into too much detail, yeah, I, I did pay a, a huge price for that and yeah, ultimately did the right thing by customers, but it's pretty frustrating that particularly at the time, I mean, now the dust is very, very much settled, but yeah, it's frustrating when people are calling you a fraudster when you're quite literally the opposite and there are actual fraudsters, i.e. Forex guys or whatever, kind of a category that jumps out that have never had any of that online and they've ran off to Dubai and, you know, probably dodged a tax bill and a fucking legal inquiry. But I was laughing about this the other day. Um, you know, um, the Paul brothers were involved with a, like a rug pull on an NFT. Yeah. What was it called? Um, Zoo Friends or some bullshit. Yeah, they've yeah. pretty much Coffeezilla just on about it. They've yeah. just ridden the wave on that and it's it's not really affected them in any shape or form. And I wonder if people who do that on a semi-regular basis are just built different morally or they can just ride out the storm and just continue posting yeah. and come back. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe they've got better lawyers than I did or something. But yeah, I, I was just very conscious at the time. I wanted to keep my integrity intact and do the right thing, which I very much did. Um, you know, there is an argument to say I could have shut my laptop and fucked off to Dubai and I don't know, maybe a lot of people would have not got their money back and maybe I would have lost less money, but that was never going to be the right thing to do. So could you imagine yeah. looking yourself in the mirror during the process you're going through now and having done that, I don't think you would be in as uh, strong. No, exactly. Exactly. Which, which is why, yeah, I think keep your integrity intact and do the right thing and, you know, it's probably going to end up better in the end and that's the way i've that's the way i approached it i said well do the right thing very painful um and yeah am i right in saying that the, the am i right in saying that the sample sign for neon beach was create your own reality yeah i've still got it it's, it's the one that's always on the pod it's become a bit of an heirloom at this point I was going to say, I think you've repeatedly done that, though. If you look at the different things that you've done, you I know you, you said you joked on, I feel slow, the, but you're just relentlessly name. doing it. Yeah, I mean, I always joke that, yeah, if you search creatorreality.com, it goes to space because I forgot I had that. So I've got a fucking loads of domains, by the way. <laughs> so many of them. Um, yeah, it forwards to space goods. What was I going to say? Um, yeah, I always joke to my friends or whatever that I think I'm definitely the least well-off person that has built three multi-million pound brands from scratch. <laughs> but I hope they'll fucking get paid for it eventually. Um, I've certainly been well, paid experiences and stories so far, but I always find it hilarious when 
I'll get DMs. And it's just me being way too honest. Yeah, again, I get DMs of people. They literally watch my pod and they're like, I don't know, they're 17. And they're like, oh, you're my idol. Like, I want to be, I want to make 20 million quid like you. And I'm like, I haven't made 20 million quid, bro. I'm, I'm still working on that. So if you want to, if you want to send me a link to someone that can help me with that, please do. So it's just funny the assumptions people make. They think because you've built a business with loads of revenue that I think a lot of people like literally think that revenue is money in the founder's pocket. And even in a great profitable business that doesn't fuck up like mine did, it's never the case. Like I know plenty of founders that are running multi eight figure businesses that have fuck all money personally, because usually until there's a liquidation event or you sell the business or whatever, unless you're drawing loads of money out of the business, like, you know, you have access to money, but it's, it's not yours in the same way, especially if you have investors and so on. Um, yeah, it's just funny. I think a lot of people just have this warped perspective on the reality of like, finance um when building an actual business that isn't just selling courses on youtube which can be like pure profit but e-com margin yeah yeah it is a funny yeah. one I, I know when you built neon beach you wanted the neon sign for yourself so that was the driver right back in the past you had wavy leggings because you wanted to sell oh, yeah. rowing leggings with space goods were you just looking for a mushroom brand for yourself or what was the driver there i've only ever done stuff that i wanted so like I literally until Space Goods, I'd never even sat and really planned anything. I literally just fucking launched it within about two days and saw what stick, saw what saw what stuck, like throw shit at the wall, do it. I've been always been very good at just moving quickly in zero to one. Probably too quick in many cases, which is why I scaled too hard and fucked up in 2020. But yeah, it's pro- arguably better than never doing anything, which plenty of people do. You know, they talk about something for 10 years and they wake up and they're 40 years old and they're still talking about it, which is like probably the most tragic tragic part of life um what do you think yeah, makes you so good at taking kids. action then matt i don't know i'm probably a bit of a lunatic in many ways um i'm yeah i think i'm definitely not i'm, I'm not scared of risk i suppose i'm mm. not risk averse or is it i am risk averse i don't know but yeah i don't know like some people are so scared of what could go wrong like i just i don't even know like even more i'm probably less even more like risky not risky but i just i don't feel like i have anything to lose like because the biggest thing i could lose is not doing it which is what most people do sadly or you know just because even when i fucked up which i have many times i'm obviously going to go again like what else am i going to go and do get a job in waitrose well i used to do that i'm not gonna do that again do you know what i mean so so yeah i suppose I, i had a bit more logic when i was going into the next thing i've done as in I sat down and planned it a little bit. But yeah, it still stemmed from I, I wanted this. It didn't exist, so I made it. Which And it's still so new, like, that industry as well. Yeah, like, I always I actually think like building brands, and I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but building any business, but I think particularly building either physical products or software products, like actually creating a product rather than, I don't know, running an agency, which I don't think it quite requires the same level of, creativity that's not to diss agencies but i do think there's a reason there's nine agencies to every brand or or probably more probably 50 agencies to every brand because i don't know i'm just very much a brand building person and i admire brand builders and people that create products basically so whether that's software you know d2c products it's it's quite literally alchemy isn't it like you you take an idea and you make it real and you give it and people buy it like that's the beauty of entrepreneurship it's very very fucking hard and stressful but in a romanticized 
like poetic way that's what entrepreneurship is particularly when you're building products i think you literally create you have an idea and you turn it into something and it, that is literally alchemy um but yeah you're I hopeless don't know. romantic I, matt hopeless romantic yeah i always will be and i always will be and i probably till i fucking die i'll be coming up with some quotes and listening to some deep sound synthy wave like i don't know yeah music that just goes with the pink lights and shit but yeah, I mean, it, it was quite nice to know that I could create something and do it again after the fuckery of the previous two because I'd, I honestly thought I just I just not lost my confidence massively with everything. And then, yeah, I suppose when you just work at something, you can build up again, right? And I guess now I'm in a position where I've built the business to getting towards the level I was at before in terms of scale. I'm not quite there yet, but it's a much better business in many ways. Um, well, it definitely is because of the things I've learned. Um, but I certainly think it's my best piece of work today in terms of product and brand and you know, still very much 1% of the way there. But I am definitely happy with what I've done in the first 11 months now. So, What excites you the most about it? I think the fact that I actually, like, I believe in, in psilocybin and mushrooms so much that I would just happily work on it until I die. Like ultimately like i genuinely and i actually really just want to get fucking rich as well because that would be great and that is a massively important part of life but beyond that i i think this market is kind of made for me in many ways um yeah i don't know it just feels like the perfect blend of, or ikigai is the japanese terms i've referenced many times it just feels like the perfect combination of things that i want to work on i'm interested in you know has a market for I don't know. I just maybe very arrogantly think I'm like the perfect founder for a brand in this space. And yeah, it's just, and it's just interesting to me. And it, it makes the fact that it's so fucking hard to do worthwhile because what else would I want to be doing? I'm not really sure. Like if I had a billion pounds right now, I'd probably still work on this to some extent. I'd probably just, you know, maybe do it in a bigger office and hire more people quicker or whatever. But wouldn't we all? There's a really interesting concept around finding what you find to be relatively easy that others struggle with so finding mm. what work you can do and what pain you can bear that other people find almost too painful or too challenging yours is yeah. un like undeniably probably design a brand concept moving quickly going forward with that because um i noticed when i was um, doing some research you follow chris williamson who's one of the launch episodes for, for oh, this yeah, show I used and, to go to and the gym with him yeah in newcastle back in newcastle yeah yeah class he's an absolutely great guy and what he's doing with modern wisdom is incredible and he mm. talks about a concept where the work will be hard but the tools will feel light in your hands and i think if anything sums it up it's you just like building space goods building the design the packaging the logo the colorways the products like yeah you're you're just grafting away and some people would be like that'd be like their worst nightmare of like the entrepreneurial mm. cycle they'd much rather be like the face selling it or something like that whereas you're like no not a problem i can build this with so much creativity and so much flow and bring all these ideas to the table yeah literally um that's actually quite unusual because even my mates who are way more successful than me annoyingly right now um generally don't have that skill set i mean some of them kind of do but most of them would have to hire a designer to do a website or packaging or whatever it is whereas pretty much everything you see visually other than me physically taking the pictures is me like i've de designed all the packaging the branding the website even like literally landing pages i do that all myself which is probably retarded but i just i'm just not willing to pay someone 
a shitload of money to do something I can do myself in two hours. And so, a good standard though as well, Matt. Like there's always a case for outsourcing when somebody can buy back time that you can use that time to do something more valuable. But mm. if you can do it really well, then let's crack on. Yeah, and I think I've realized, um, and I actually hired a managing director literally last week, so an MD who's like 35 and way more experienced than me and we're still very much getting up to speed. But I've done that pretty soon because I realized that I, I, I don't really enjoy a lot of the, I mean, I'm relatively competent here and I can definitely bear the brunt of all the bullshit you have to do as a founder. But I would like to think that I am the creative and I, would, I want to lead that more. And I think that's where I can be the best at um and hopefully become very good at it because i'm you know i look at stuff i did even a year ago and think that shit and i hope i'll always think that because in 20 years i'll be really fucking good then hopefully um do you take some inspiration from somebody like ben francis who did that with gymshark with steve hewitt and i've interviewed paul richardson who was one of the older heads that came Mm -hmm. in at gymshark and really guided it with ben as the creative outlet yeah, I mean, I, I don't remotely put myself even close to someone like Ben Francis um, in terms of what he's achieved. But yeah, I think the the premise of it is obviously similar. Um, because yeah, I think there is a huge difference between a founder and kind of a someone that runs a business. And because uh, and like I was saying, I feel like weird going into an office and like feels so alien to me. Like the whole maybe more corporate side where the structure and planning and so on i'm just terrible at all that shit because i like to be random and sporadic and risky i guess and create shit and move fast and it's weird to me that other people don't think like that for example even the guy i've hired like a bit of me thinks why the fuck does he want to work for me i mean he probably wants a salary but like i'm almost like embarrassed that he would want to work for me when he's way more experienced than me but then at the same time he has said like well yeah, because you have built something. I, I don't I don't want to take the risk doing that. I couldn't do that. I haven't I haven't done that yet. Or maybe never will. So yeah, I think I'm starting to realise people do actually have it's kind of weird to me that not everyone wants to build their own shit, but ninety nine percent of people don't want to build their own shit. And probably for good reason, to be honest, that they've spent like a year in my shoes because it's very fucking painful. Or, or at least in my experience it has been. I'm sure loads of people have make way more money and have a much better time than I do, but for me, it's definitely been a pretty fucking painful road, which is probably partly biology, but partly my experiences in recent years. But I've just decided to keep chipping away because it'd be more painful to try and do something else. From a biology perspective, Matt, what are you doing to to manage your mental health? Well, my mental health is pretty fucked. I mean, I'm diagnosed being bipolar and all this shit and I refuse to take any medication and <laughs> I just prefer to fucking train hard in the gym and microdose mushrooms down then which does help, but I'd be lying if I said my mental health was good the majority of the time. I think there's certainly seasons and I think it's not, it's, I don't know. I think, yeah, I'm probably so vocal about that shit more than most people that are in a similar position because I think there's such a strange, I don't know, like a strange taboo around. Well, also, I mean, maybe I just sound like a complete bitch to a lot of my friends because I don't think any of them struggle with their mind the same way I do, or at least they've never said they do and they've never looked like they do but yeah i don't know there's this strange that there kind of has been this strange like toxic culture everyone pretends they're fucking killing it all the time and all this shit um but i think it's because successful people or people that look successful haven't really spoke about mental health and shit until maybe recently i know people like stephen bartlett kind of talk about it a lot and i don't know like some athletes or whatever and 
I don't know, like if Drake came out tomorrow and said he struggled with depression, I think suddenly a lot of people would talk about it more, right? Because someone that is like the top G of the fucking world would be speaking about it. Whereas I think in the past there's been, and even myself, I, I look at a lot of people that talk about mental health and think they're just moaning. And, and, and I fucking, I'm one of those people that talks about it because I don't know, I think we have these preconceived ideas where like, if you look like your life's all right, then you by definition can't have any problems. But what's in your mind isn't necessarily what people see on the outside and that's kind of the that's that's the whole problem with mental health problems is that you can't fucking see them so if you don't speak about them no one's gonna know right i think the way you speak about them though is is very valuable and it's always clear that you're doing as much as you can to manage the different fluctuations that you might experience so you talk a lot about your running you've gotten into your crossfit you don't drink very often. Like you're quite focused on like your your kind of holistic health with like you, you mentioned mushroom blends, etc. I think that's a more helpful message for people to hear rather than sometimes you get the guy that's like addicted to uh, drugs, boozes all the time, like is out partying, and you're like, well, it kind of makes sense that your mental health is in a challenging place, especially if they're maybe working in a job yeah. they hate and they don't see it going anywhere. They don't have purpose. Yeah, well, I'll tell you something that's probably really controversial if she ever watches it. But my ex girlfriend, I had a massive disagreement with this, and she probably thinks my piece of shit. But whatever, that's fine. She would. She was on like massive. I used to be on antidepressants when I was 19, right? And I, I so I feel like I can qualify to say this, and it didn't fucking help me. It made me feel like a robot. It like got rid of. I guess the downs in many ways, but it also got rid of any of the fucking personality that I had left. So I just decided I never want to touch that shit again. But, and my ex-girlfriend, which is, I'm not going to say her name, but a great example of, I think probably a, lot, a big slice of society is she doesn't go to the gym. She probably drinks like three, four times a week, but she takes a fucking massive antidepressants dose every day, which I think there's definitely a place for that um because there's plenty of people that that has helped massively but i don't think the people that don't go to the gym drink often do fucking cocaine every other week like she did by the way have um, really bad diets we were, we, because we were, you're you're yeah, you've so got I your second it brain as well start with that shit and i also passionately believe and it is really controversial i think the world would be a better place if people came off antidepressants and everyone did a fucking microdose or a macrodose of mushrooms i genuinely believe that from the core of my being but obviously we're not in a place in the world where that's legally allowed yet. But strangely enough, prescription drugs, which I don't think are ever going to get to the root cause, are pumped by society and so on. And You know, yeah, Andrew Huberman, an one. I think he's done a tremendous service for people when it comes to understanding their brain chemistry, like some of the things he's talking about on Huberman Lab. And I spoke to, I've, I've been joking, he's called TJ Power and I joke that he's the kind of British Andrew Huberman or he's, he's going to make his mm. way up there anyway. And he, he's brilliant when he talks about dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin. And I really, really value what he has to say because again, it's all the actionable stuff when it comes to like, how can I manipulate my own brain chemistry without maybe needing uh, an artificial dose and like in swallowed yeah. on a on, on a daily basis when it comes to legalization and like the landscape for psychedelics like you say because there's not a fiscal incentive at the moment for government or providers to drive it that's where the the challenge lies but i think from from, from what i looked at oregon was one of the first to legalize like assisted therapy um yeah via and australia criminalized a lot of stuff as well yeah i, I think I'd be lying if I said I had a fucking clue how my brand is ever going to sell psilocybin because that's always been my vision, but I really don't know how the fuck to get there. And that's the challenge. But I think step one of getting there is building a brand and a business, more importantly, that actually has capital and customers and a fi you know financial backing, which is why I've 
obviously launch Rainbow Dust and so on. Which, by the way, if, if psilocybin never becomes a thing, I can still build the next Huel or Athletic Greens. That that is my vision. But my vision beyond that, and where I think this could really be like a billion pound business, and I would say that as a founder, but I actually genuinely believe that is if slash when psilocybin becomes more readily available and the first step of that is probably well is as it is in certain countries already like assisted therapy where it's more like you go to a clinic kind of like going to a doctor's and they can legally give it to you in like a prescription dose i think the next step beyond that is something like a hymns that the big brand in america kind of a telehealth company so they sell things like viagra like you know effectively like cost price unbranded and you have to get an online prescription but you don't have to go anywhere and it's basically like d2c but it's still not quite as fluid as D2C because you have to technically get a prescription online and all this shit. I think psilocybin and microdosing could get there in the next few years. You know, I'm not I'm not sure it's ever going to get to, well, certainly not the next few years, going to get to the point where you can just buy a bag of sort of psilocybin rainbow dust in the same way you can buy rainbow dust now. Like literally just buy it on Amazon, it comes next day. You don't have to say who you are. You don't have to have a prescription, all this. But broadly speaking, I think, yeah, it could get to that kind of online pharmacy stage at some point. Um, I'm, I'm already looking into how I can become like a registered pharmacy or partner with people that are to make that happen. Um, or looking at doing something in Amsterdam where truffles are legal, which is like a gray area. It's yeah. kind of like mushrooms aren't legal, but if they're grown in a certain way and you call them truffles, they're legal, which is why you can go to Amsterdam and buy magic mushrooms basically. But then you can't bring them home because it's a class A drug in the UK. So it's a strange, funny, grey area. And yeah, like I said, I'd be lying if I really said I knew what the fuck I was doing in terms of making that happen long term. But I certainly have the vision for it. And I'm very intentionally building a brand that I believe will be one of the most prominent in a space that doesn't yet exist in terms of positioning itself to be ready for that market. Um, which is partly why the brand is very indicative of psychedelics. You know, visually, the colors, I think everyone knows kind of what we're talking about, but it's really frustrating because I can't actually physically speak about it on Instagram or the website because Instagram will ban your ad account and then you don't have a business. So, yeah. How do you think it compares to the CBD industry? I always say I think it's like CBD 15, 20 years ago in terms of, at least, in, I know there are differences and I, I don't know CBD as well because I don't, I don't get on with it myself. I've never really smoked weed and shit. But I guess that's kind of the similar comparison between magic mushrooms and adaptogenic mushrooms like lion's men and so on. Um, so yeah, I think it's similar in the sense that 20 years ago, weed was just blanket seen as like losers smoke it in their mum's basement. And now you have brands like Trip CBD, which obviously isn't weed, but it's a derivative of that CBD. Um, and you have middle-aged women in their 100 grand Range Rovers dropping CBD before they take the kids to their private school. So it's definitely developed culturally. Um, I think mushrooms are already going that way in terms of magic mushrooms and well, basically psychedelics, but particularly magic mushrooms and just just mushrooms in general. Because I think people's you know all these Netflix documentaries, all these books coming out like M Michael Pollan, How to Change Your Mind, all that shit. Um, which isn't Michael Pollan; it's the other guy. Um, oh no, it is Michael Pollan. Yeah, there's a, there's off, there's another one, Dennis McKenna. That's it. So he's done a documentary, which I think was fantastic, fun guy. And then there's another guy as well. No, Paul Stamets, sorry, is the one on, on the documentary. There's like three big figures that have been huge on Netflix and all these books that are coming out and shit. And there's all these research papers going on and basically proving that psilocybin pretty much cures depression, for lack of a better term, in the right circumstance. And not just psilocybin, but, you know, MDMA, fucking ketamine therapy, 
LSD, but psilocybin is is the magic part of magic mushrooms for anyone wondering. It's the chemical compound. So yeah, I mean, it's quite obvious that it's probably net beneficial for society. And I think it's been proven that psilocybin is like the least dead, the least deadly drug on earth or something in terms of like actually killing people. Like alcohol is number one and, you know, heroin, cocaine, whatever. And then psilocybin's right at the bottom. Like the only real risk of that is you take too much and you think you can fly and jump off a balcony, but plenty more people die because they're drink driving every the, fucking day. The devil's yeah, in the dosage. He's everywhere. The devil's in the dosage with almost every drug. And I always do this kind of thought yeah. experiment with friends because I pretty much don't drink alcohol. I, pr- I probably drank like twice in the last like 1500 days something like that and oh, it wow. just doesn't it yeah. just doesn't interest me I massively i didn't drink much but you're definitely doing better than me but i'm i've got I'm a dachshund ve- sat on my lap who keeps wriggling yeah it's not a problem at all the pod mascot <laughs> the aesthetics on? of this podcast just got much better <laughs> yeah there you go you can screenshot that little thumbnail but- but I, uh, I, I certainly think that as a thought experiment, I sometimes play this game where I'm saying if every drug was brought out tomorrow, so alcohol, heroin, cocaine, mm. MDMA, um, mushrooms, and there was no societal rules or laws around any of them, almost none of you would pick 10 pints and two bottles of wine yeah. on like a, on like a weekend. You would, you would pick according to the event that you're going to, whether that was a rave or a night in with a movie or whether that was, you were going to um, a, a networking event with, uh, with, with work colleagues, you would pick mm. different substances to suit that if there wasn't the legalities around that. And the only reason yeah. those legalities are all there are because of money and how our systems designed for people to profit from that based on the existing structures. Yeah, as you could go down a whole rabbit hole and you know read into conspiracies of why psychedelics were basically banned in the late '60s and all this. And yeah, there's, there's probably going to be people that go missing for speaking out about this stuff the next few years. So I have to be careful what I say, but yeah. I, have I you seen Robert Carhart Harris? His name yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to get. He's him like on the a pod. dream. I was going to say he's, he's a dream podcast guy, guest for me. He's now based on in. It. Yeah, I'm so lazy with the pod. You know, like you say, you do research and shit. I literally don't do research, and then a guest will arrive at my flat, and I'm like, "Who are you?" But I thought maybe a bit of me thought that was like the style, but now I'm starting to think, fuck, I need to take it more seriously. But then I also don't feel like I have time to even do the pod. But I would love to get more interesting guests on, I suppose. So yeah, he'd be a cool one. I think he's based in San Francisco now, is he? At John yeah. Hopkins University I've, or something? I've, I've emailed him. Um, it's With guests like that, it's always a long chase. Some academics come back to you super quick, but others are much harder than they prioritize things same as like some of the authors i've had on like you're talking like a six month lead time sometimes which is uh which is challenging you just mm. have to have to do have to do the work um but um mutual guests i think rob lips is due to come on your podcast in the summer isn't he yeah he was meant to come on a while ago i think and then, i don't know what happened yeah he mentioned yeah. he's going to come to london after his show i think and he was like oh do you know this matt kelly again i'm like oh yeah i'm actually speaking to him soon yeah i've, I've met him once yeah he follows me on instagram and shit he messaged me a few times yeah i need to arrange that That'd be good. I think that would be cool. You'd get on. He's he's vibrant on a high level and he's very open-minded to things that, that you're looking to mm. pursue as well when it comes to, to these things. One of the last kind of things I was keen to ask you, Matt, is that you have had periods where you've been driven by spite and that's where people have maybe like criticized you or you've maybe wanted to show that you've made the right decisions. You seem very mellow today and chilled and we've just talked about your passion project, which is really exciting. But how much of you is still driven by maybe people like the naysayers and people that maybe don't rate you as, as high as they should 
Oh, probably massively. I think I'm, I'll always have a chip on my shoulder and I'm definitely more driven by negativity than positivity. I think Andy Frisella speaks about that a lot. He's like the first podcast I ever listened to, the MF CEO, and I related to his. I think people are either one one or the other way. Um, and I don't, don't think I'm a negative person. I'm just like when it comes, even like doing that marathon, it was like I just build this perception of someone telling me I can't do it in my head. And obviously building a business is certainly a marathon and it's a much longer one than two hours, 52 minutes. Um, well, at least for me, it's probably going to be like five, 10 years. So you can't, yeah, you can't focus on like fucking people telling you you can't, you can't do it for that long because they're probably not going to be watching in 10 years time. But there's certainly a bit of me that's always like, even just little petty things, I'll be completely honest, like wanting to prove to my ex-girlfriend that, I mean, even though I broke up with her, it's like kind of your loss because yeah, there's always like, painful memories associated with things like that and you think well yeah just i think any guy particularly wants to fucking better themselves and probably prove to someone in many ways a girl from their past or whatever maybe i I just definitely i make a big movie in my head about certain things like that you know wanting to prove people wrong or whatever so yes that's the long answer to i'm definitely driven by that a lot um i've used it at different times in my life i i like to think i'm proving people wrong sometimes but i always try and do like good with it i suppose so like when people are like oh the podcast space is so crowded why are you just making another one what are you going to talk oh, about I hate, another you know, podcast, that comment in general whether it's podcasts starting a business i think is the most stupid comment anyone can literally ever make because a do you not play football because it's popular so no one plays football because they're not ronaldo right that's the same logic and then b if you say that about everything which most people do then you will literally never do anything ever and by default, you, you're you're never going to be in the one percent of people that create over consume, because you're like everyone else saying, "Oh, it's already crowded." But it's way less crowded than the crowd of people not doing anything. So, quality's, there's seven quality's billion people well on a massive thing. Like, yeah, if there's a million podcasts, there's still not many people. Yeah, I, I say this all the time. Like podcasts are really funny space as well. And you, you've 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 said to me how hard it is to be consistent with it and that's one of the hardest challenges but with that comes quality as well like some of your episodes the quality of it's so high because you're so authentic you're so open you've interviewed Iman Gadzi who so many people want to hear listen to as well oh, I wish I could go back and do that episode because I was about two and a half stone heavier and looked like absolute shit in that episode but it's my most viewed so far your so, questions were great though yeah. and he's such an interesting guy so that's yeah yeah it's a good episode it's a it is, it is a funny one though like podcasts in particular and like even like e-commerce in particular where you're maybe giving advice to younger people they'll be like oh but like i've seen so many businesses that do the exact same thing you're like well maybe just do the same thing but 10 percent better or with a 10 percent difference and a slight twist and like in the same way that you're doing a mushroom blend that's very early but somebody's going to come along and try and do the same thing as you with a slight twist on it and you're going to end up head to head for a little bit and if and whoever jukes out and and, and continues to yeah and up, also and upscale, we'll do like i don't think people realize how big the world is like people Coming back to this point, people will say, oh, there's competition. But the alternative is you go and get a grad scheme job like literally everyone else. So just by doing something, you're already in the smallest bucket of people. So if we're going by that logic, everything else is screwed because there's, I don't know, fucking 700 million people working a nine to five in X industry. There's certainly not 700 million people starting a mushroom brand. There might be 700, but it's still a massive market. And I think something being crowded is actually almost probably better in some ways because it means you it means it works and you can go in and do it better. Like you can always do something better. You can always apply a new angle or logic to it. 
you can always think of it a different way. Like there's no such thing as a crowded market, in my opinion, um, whether it's podcasts, brands, fucking anything, because you can always apply your twist to it and no one can be you. But the problem is everyone's trying to copy someone else because they have n- none of their own ideas. Lean into your own uniqueness and use that as a superpower rather than trying to be like the Aldi or the Costco version of mm. whoever else you're emulating. Yeah, exactly. I'll say that. Yeah, cool note for us to wrap up on, Matt. I've I've really enjoyed that and definitely tried to go in a few different directions from all the stuff that you've mm. you've done previously online, which I would definitely recommend people go and check out. And when I say that you are as open a book as there is on the topics that people don't like to talk about when it comes to money, finance, business, mental health. I, I, re- I really, really do mean that. And I've got a lot of appreciation for what you've been out over the last 18 months in particular. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably come back to bite me at some point where I get cancelled for something I said, but just trying to keep it honest. And yeah, that gens- tends to be the theme of anything I do. With cancellation, I think you can just ride it out though. If you don't like, don't apologize for something that you said that's been taken out of context or something that you said mm. that you actually stand don't by. Don't tempt like, anyone. You know, there'll be some troll that starts a page against me now. Yeah. that's true that's true but matt where would you like people to head towards to continue the conversation um my pod has most things the midnight pod or at Methusius, which people think my second name is huge just it's not it's m-a-t-t-h-u-c-i-u-s it's just my instagram and twitter username um it's just a play on the chinese philosopher confucius so there's a lot of wisdom there ago. as well exactly like you've yeah got some it Middle Eastern wisdom. people yeah exactly people now think it's serious so i just i just run with it so Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, I guess. And I post way too much on there. So you can probably go and find out everything about my entire life if you watch every video I've ever put on YouTube. So Outstanding, Matt. That'll be linked in the show notes. Thank you very much to you, the listener. And I'll be back to speak to you all again very, very 